Welcome to Moral Leadership Bootcamp. Here, we come together as Jewish humans devoted to the study of both morality and leadership, as seen through the lens of ancient texts and modern experiences. For just a few minutes each week, we'll discuss lessons culled from the timeless texts of the Jewish people, but even more often, from the hard-earned experiences of the world's heroes and villains of the past and sometimes present. Welcome back. Okay, I've been thinking a lot since the last two episodes that one of the main ways that we learn the things that we learn the best is through stories, through stories and through storytelling. Ruven Leichter says this all the time, that Emuna is built through stories. And I don't think he just means classic Emuna, Emuna in the classic sense. He means like anything that we then truly believe in in our heart and in our gut. In a certain way, we learn those through our own experiences or listening to the experiences of others way more than just reading some fact sheets or listening to some research or anything like that. So what I'm going to try to do here is for the next at least few of these, walk through the second temple period. And honestly, the reason that I'm doing the second temple period is only because I think it is fascinating. I'm just inordinately fascinated with that time period. I think the focus on the people and what the people specifically were confronted with, that was unprecedented for sure at their time. But part of me feels like it's actually unprecedented in all the history of the Jewish people since then as well. The choices that they made shifted and defined Judaism into what we think of as Judaism today. Again, there are some heroes and there are some villains and we'll be meeting both and trying to learn the lessons in leadership from those specific individuals. So the hero of today is going to be Shimon Atadik, but I want to take actually a major fast forward to nowadays in order for us to adequately understand Shimon Atadik. In Dayton, Ohio, in the National Air Force Museum, there's a display of 80 goblets in commemoration of the 80 men who flew with the Doolittle Raid in World War II, which is possibly the most famous Air Force raid in the history of the United States. As each member of the Doolittle Raid died, their goblet got turned upside down. There was a bottle of 1896 cognac that was reserved for the last two surviving members of the Doolittle Raid to be able to do a toast together. On November 9th, 2013, the toast was made. And on April 9th, 2019, the last goblet was overturned when Richard Cole, who was Jimmy Doolittle's co-pilot, died at the age of 103. Shimon Hatzadik was Richard Cole. Shimon Hatzadik was the last remaining survivor of what's known as the Anshe Knesses Hagidola. To understand Shimon Atzadik, we have to understand a tiny bit about the Anshe Ganesa Zagadola. And really the most important thing to know about the Anshe Ganesa Zagadola is that they stood at the beginning of the Second Temple time period, knowing that it was going to end. There were no pretenses in the beginning of the Second Temple period that the Second Beis HaMikdash would last forever. Their main goal was to push Judaism out of the hands of the prophets and the temple priests and into the hands of the regular Jewish home and the regular Jewish heart. It started with people like Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel and Mordechai, prophets, and the only other person who we know that was on the Anshek and Zagadola is Shimon Atadik. He's described in Pirkei Avos as Mishyare Anshek and Zagadola, of the remainder of the Anshek and Zagadola. And the most compelling source that I read about what exactly that means is that he was Richard Cole. He was the last remaining survivor. After everyone else in the Anshe Ganesh Zagadola had died, he was the last one standing. 
And the stories that Chazal memorialize about his life, besides for the one Mishnah and Perkevos, are really fascinating. And that's what we're going to learn, our leadership lesson for today. As a Kohen Gadol, he ruled, so to speak, for 40 years at a time period that would feature a whopping 300 different Kohen Gadols over the course of time, where it really he should have featured somewhere between, let's say, 12 and 15. And he was the last legitimate Kohen Gadol. And in a certain way, he was the bridge. He was the link between this old world that connected the Second Temple period to the prophets, to people like Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, and Mordechai, and the new world that they were all looking over that brink. They were standing on the cusp of it. He was standing on the cusp of it and trying to prepare the Jewish people of how to move forward into it successfully. So we're going to learn one story about Shimon HaTzadik, and that's where we're going to draw our leadership lesson for today. So at the time of Shimon HaTzadik, Alexander the Great, who was arguably one of the greatest military generals in the history of the world, takes over basically the entire known world. Alexander the Great dies at the age of 33. So he is this young general that is just brilliant military strategist. He takes over everything, including Pras and Madai, Persia, Medea, it's called. The Jewish people were under the rule of Persia, Medea until then. And Alexander the Great again comes in and sweeps through the known world and therefore de facto becomes, so to speak, the ruler of Eretz Yisrael. Okay, a little bit of a rewind. So at the time that the Babylonians had first exiled the Jewish people from Judea, they had installed this alternate regional people that are known as the Kushim. It's unclear exactly who they are to basically make sure that while they had just exiled the mass population of Jews from Judea, that Judea did not remain completely uninhabited and uncultivated. And then when Cyrus the Great of Persia Medea allows the Jews to come back into Eretz Yisrael and repopulate it, understandably the Kushim are somewhat disgruntled by this. So when Alexander the Great now thrashes Prasumadai and becomes the ruler of Eretz Yisrael, the Kushim see a golden opportunity. They harness their horses and they send a delegation to Alexander the Great to slander the Jews. And they tell him basically that the Jews are consolidating their powers in Jerusalem and they're fomenting rebellion against Alexander. And Alexander, as my 10-year-old son would say, classic, does exactly what they expect him to do. He harnesses his own horses also known as the cavalry of the Macedonian army, and he marches on Jerusalem. So now, imagine that you're in Jerusalem. You're standing on the, on the ramparts, maybe you're in the middle of your routine guard duty, and you hear the massive thumping of hooves of thousands of horses and thousands of foot soldiers, and you look out, you squint, and you see the black mass of this giant army of the most powerful military general in the world marching against your city. And obviously you start to panic. Maybe you send up the alarm. You quickly get your helmet and you get your armor and your spear. And maybe if you're lucky, you also have a bow and arrow. You rush up to the ramparts. You feel your blood pounding in your ears. Everybody's panicking. They're all running to the ramparts. You have no idea what, you're, what it is that you're exactly supposed to do against Alexander and his army when they march against your little petty Jerusalem that you recently rebuilt with your own hands. And through the ranks of the panicked soldiers like yourself comes Shimon Atadik. The Kohen Gadol. And Shimon HaTadik is saying one thing, and this is what it is. Shh, it's okay, it's okay. I got a plan. Don't worry, calm down. Everybody just calm down. I got a plan. Don't worry. Okay, so that calms you down a little bit, but you're really unsure what, what exactly this plan is of the Kohen Gadol Shimon HaTadik. What exactly is he going to do in this scenario? And Alexander and his troops get closer, and then you see them stop, 
And on the shiniest, whitest horse at the front, you see Alexander pause with his tall back and his large scarlet plume of the Greek army. And you see him begin a conversation with his Macedonian generals about exactly how they're going to take down the walls of your city. And through it all, you hear a noise beneath you. And looking down, you see the great gates of Jerusalem thrown open. And out of the gates of Jerusalem walk three men. Shimon Atadik in the full garb of the Kahuna Gadola, and one man on each side of him holding a torch. And they begin a slow, solitary walk towards Alexander the Great. And at this point, if your blood pressure wasn't up enough, now it starts re-pounding in your ears. This was his plan? I mean, what exactly is he going to do? It's just him. (laughs) It's him and two schnooks with torches on the side of him. What is this plan? This was his plan? And to the surprise of everybody, as soon as Alexander the Great sees Shimon Atadik, Alexander the Great dismounts his horse and bows to the ground in front of Shimon Atadik. Now, happily for you, Alexander the Great's own generals are just as shocked at this series of events as you are, and they ask him in a voice that is loud enough that carries to the ramparts, Adonenu HaMelech, with all due respect, dear king, Melech Kamocha Mishtacha Veliyehudizeh, A king like you, a conqueror like you, is on the ground bowing to this Jew? What just happened? And he replies to them the very famous lines, Amar lahem, Demus diokno shelzeh, anochi roeh b'malchama v'noteach. Every time before I go out to war, I have a certain dream. I have a certain apparition that appears before my eyes. And the apparition is the face of a holy man who tells me that I'm going to win. And every time he tells me it, I win. And you know whose face it is? This guy's. It's this man's face, Shimon Atadik's face. I'm not fighting him. And Shimon Atadik then takes Alexander by the hand, leads him into Jerusalem, shows him the holy temple, shows him the Besamekdash of the Jews, and tells him, you've been duped. The Kushim came to slander against you when every single day, me and the entire Jewish people bring a sacrifice for your sake and for your emperor's sake, and for the sake of peace. And Alexander turns his back and walks away and never steps foot in Jerusalem again. And like so many great stories that we tell, we forget the end of it. Very, very frequently, this story is repeated without the second half, because this is actually not the end of the story of the interactions between Shimon Atadik and Alexander the Great. It goes on, And in the continuation is where we are going to find our lesson for today about leadership. So listen to what happens next. Alexander the Great seems to be sufficiently impressed and somewhat quelled by his interaction with Shimon Atadik. He leaves Jerusalem, but one year later, he sends a delegation to Shimon Atadik, his friend, his old friend in Jerusalem. And he says to him this, hey, guess what I've been thinking? And I have a grand old idea. This is what you're going to do. You're going to put a statue of me in your holy temple. And then the delegation leaves. And Shimon Atzadik is left with a choice. And if you were that person who was in the ramparts, and now your Mishmar is right next to Shimon Atzadik, wherever he happens to be in the, in the temple, your blood pressure skyrockets yet again. What's he going to do? He's just been given an absolutely untenable choice by Alexander the Great, who until that exact moment was your happy ally. But now, what exactly is Shimon Atzadik supposed to do? He can't put up a statue of Alexander the Great in the Beis Hamikdash. It's the Beis Hamikdash, after all. 
On the other hand, he can't just say no because you say no to a direct request from Alexander the Great and you're declaring war on the Macedonian superpower. So what is Shimonatadik supposed to do exactly? What would you do in this situation? Would you put up the statue or would you declare war on the Macedonian Empire? Shimonatadik makes a brilliant, brilliant choice as the statesman and the Kohen Gadol of the Jewish people. He both does and doesn't do what Alexander asks. What he actually does is neither. He comes up with a third option. And he sends a letter with his own delegation back to Alexander that says this. Hey, nice to hear from you, old friend. I really can't do that. It doesn't really work with our belief structure of the Jewish people. Not going to work. We can't put the statue of you up in the temple, but I'll tell you what we can do instead. We will make an edict that every Jewish baby boy born this year will be named Alexander after you. And you'll see, this will create the fact that the name Alexander now will not only be the name of the year, but it will also be a Jewish name forevermore. And not only that, we will redo our entire calendrical system. We'll restart our count of how we label our contracts and official documents and all that. We'll start counting from the first year of your reign. Alexander looks at this proposal, and he's very pleased with it, and he accepts. And through this, Shimon Atadik delays a declaration of war that otherwise was inevitable against the superpower called the Macedonian army. And he does exactly that. The name Alexander is given to every Jewish baby boy born that year. I have a first cousin, Alexandra. Alexander is still a accepted Jewish name to this day for that reason, because of that one year and that one decision of Shimon Atadik. And they start recounting all of the new documents that are published after this agreement. It's called Minyan Shtaros. And we have documents from the 1500s that still use that accounting system from the first year of Alexander's reign. So this is an astounding and fantastic lesson in leadership. Very often, all of us, I mean, this happens to me all the time, are faced with some sort of moral dilemma. Now, something that we don't often talk about is that dilemmas are actually a lot easier when they're between two options, one of which is good and one of which is bad. Because all it takes then is the clarity to understand which is the good option and the courage to choose it no matter what. And in a certain way, that always feels good. What's much harder is when we have to choose between two options, either both of which are good or both of which are bad. And what Shumanatzadik showed us is a brilliant and stable characteristic of some of the world's greatest and most successful leaders, which is the capacity to not get stuck between A and B when they're both bad or when they're both good, but to find a third solution that trumps and is superior to both of them. This is the words of Roger Martin, who's the dean of the School of Management of the University of Toronto. He wrote a book called The Opposable Mind, where he collects research that he did for 15 years about some of the world's greatest and most successful leaders. And this is what he says about it. The leaders I have studied share at least one trait aside from their talent for innovation and long-term business success. They have the predisposition and the capacity to hold two diametrically opposing ideas in their heads. And then, without panicking or simply settling for one alternative or the other, they're able to produce a synthesis that is superior to either opposing idea. Integrative thinking is my term for this process. He goes on a little bit later to say, We can use that tension between two opposing ideas to think our way through to a new and superior idea. 
So he argues that a mind that could feel the tension between two alternatives and then figure out what to do with it, which is often a third innovative creative option, is something that distinguishes leaders from the rest of us. So I think this is a fantastic lesson. This is exactly what we saw from Shimon Atadik. He was given two untenable options between A and B, neither of which he could choose. And smoothly and brilliantly, he came up with a third option that settled better than either of them. And what I love from Roger Martin's book is his point that this is not only Shimon Atadik, this is a fact that all leaders seem to have in common. And it's also a skill that could be developed. So our lesson in leadership for today is to try our best not to get stuck between A and B when they're both bad options or both good options, but instead, as often as possible, to work on our own capacity for this non-binary thinking, the integrative thinking, the creative thinking that allows us to come up with a new solution that is actually superior to both of the options that we've been given. I was told by a few good friends that I have to have an extra. So here's my extra. Thanks for joining this episode of Moral Leadership Bootcamp. Looking forward to learning with you again next time.